In this conversation, I have the pleasure of speaking with Joe O'Brien, the founder and chairman of Corvex Connected Safety. Joe is an entrepreneur. He's founded and managed numerous successful ventures in the medical device, safety, entertainment, and real estate industries. Joe embraces big ideas as well as difficult projects. And in this conversation, we talked about how Corvex aims to transform worker safety and the importance of operational excellence. Hi, Joe. It's fantastic to see you. It's great to see you, Kelly. It's always wonderful to be able to talk to you. You've got such an incredible background behind you, but you've also got such an incredible vision about something that's so important. And that is the health and safety of workers. And you bring such an eclectic background from the entrepreneurial side, the innovation side, technology, scientific thinking, and your passion and behavior. Maybe our listeners might imagine that we've had some incredible conversations, some nerdy conversations, and some passionate conversations. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to just take a moment um, and hear your story, you know, your background. If you could take us through that, that would be awesome. Sure, sure. My, my pleasure. It's, uh, it's a typical, I would say, entrepreneurial background. You know, I, I, uh, my, my, if I go way back, my father was an entrepreneur and very involved in um, private investment and I live in Minneapolis St. Paul there was a big medical device community around here when I was little and I got the bug from him if you will and and uh went to went to school played a lot of rugby bartended a lot uh, went to law school without ever the intention of becoming uh, an attorney just wanted to really wanted to keep playing rugby and, and bartending for a couple more years and and then uh, got into the medical device business and, and very quickly uh, kind of got the bug for uh, new product development new concept development uh, just I'm a very curious guy you know so over the years I've done uh, I'd say a dozen or so startups which is my favorite um, I like to find a interesting problem and come up with a, a really great way to solve it. So I've done, done a lot of work in medical device, in healthcare, in uh, some work in the hospitality and music business as a little departure, um, some industrial stuff, particularly around safety. I got into uh, 10 years plus ago and uh, you know, I've just had a lot of, had a lot of fun, some nice successes and handful of failures as it goes and uh, and really like it this corvex the, the the corvex connected worker the the concept that you and i have been meeting over and talking about that's the latest project and that's a cloud software project in the frontline industrial worker space yeah. i'd love to hear the pitch so could you do this is a good time to do the elevator pitch for corvex so that people understand um, you know, what, the, what the mission is, what the purpose is, and, and to get a little bit descriptive, you know, what, what actually uh, do workers benefit from? Industrial work, if, if you go back to the nature of frontline industrial work and how we manage frontline industrial work, um, you know, you, you go back quite a way. And the theories around industrial work looked at the frontline worker as uh, 
sort of a cog in a machine, um, pushing buttons, doing repetitive tasks. And the, the theories would suggest that that work had to be managed by someone smarter, you know, who, 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 who knew what should be done. The truth of the matter is that over the decades, um, the nature of frontline work has evolved, but the way that we manage it hasn't evolved. And, and frontline industrial workers, as a result, are disengaged. There's not a lot of transparency to the nature of frontline industrial work. Uh, companies, leaders and managers and companies believe that work follows uh, a sort of straight black line of process from start to finish, when in reality, it never does. Uh, it it uh, Work doesn't go as planned, typically, um, and frontline workers uh, become frustrated. Uh, Gallup would tell you about 70% of frontline industrial workers feel disengaged. So our objective is to put technology in the hands of those frontline workers that helps them uh, be smarter, be uh, uh, more aware, more agile, and more connected, allows them to contribute and share their voices, their ideas with their teams to deliver operational excellence, essentially uh, better outcomes in safety, quality, and productivity, um, you know, really make them a more effective, more engaged part of their, their teams. There's such, such a, a radical hypothesis in there. The radical hypothesis that, if workers have a channel for their voice and more importantly, workers have the opportunity to be accountable for their own safety and the safety of their environment, that that will lead to not only better engagement by them, but better, a better and more safe environment. Such a radical premise. Well, it, it, it is. It's also, I think from our point of view, you know, quite common sense. I mean, <laughs> you know, human beings um, make mistakes uh, and these are complex environments. Um, when, you, when you help people, uh, when you use technology to help people be more aware of their situation, be more agile, have the information that they need um, when they need it and contribute their ideas which they know best, you know, typically, um, safety and performance increase. It's, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a radical idea from a historical, typical process management standpoint, but from a human standpoint, I mean, it makes, it makes a ton of sense to us anyway, and we're seeing great results. So, so this idea um, has it's one thing to have the concept of decentralization and you know bringing workers to the table, um, but obviously a key ingredient in this is the technology and the product vision that enables this. Can we get into some nuts and bolts uh, in terms of you know everyone's been thinking about digital and smartphones and apps and data and all of this kind of stuff. And, and it's, it's nice at a theoretical level, but, but obviously you guys have very, very practical real world experiences. We do. We do. I mean, uh, our platform is a, a cloud software platform. 
uh, with some light IoT elements. We deploy a series of beacons that allow the user to break a facility or a work area up into zones. And then all of the interactions between workers and their teams happen within that context of person, of zone, of uh, you know the, the, the role that they're playing at that particular time. The goal is to use bi-directional data flow, information flow across this platform to create a transparency, a real-time transparency to the front line of industrial work, which doesn't exist today. Uh, at the management level, you know, uh, teams know what's supposed to be happening. They don't necessarily know what actually is happening. Um, they're often quite different. So we create, we use the technology to facilitate the creation of that transparency in real time. That transparency creates an accountability to action. So being aware of issues and opportunities uh, in real time allows teams to take accountability to resolve those things more quickly. So really what we do is we accelerate, you know, we help transparently identify and accelerate resolution of issues, safety issues, as an example. Um, you know, a worker can make a hazard observation in real time. They can fix it and document that fix. They can escalate it, ask for help and get, you know, they might get a, a contribution from a safety manager a thousand miles away who is part of that notification group who knows how to fix it and can facilitate the elimination of that risk much more, more quickly. And that is a big part of what drives, drives the result. Let's talk about um, Beacon. It's, I know that that's an internal, um, you know, it's part of the, the product suite. Um, but for those who are not yet familiar with Corvax and haven't had a chance to read the materials that the firm has has published, um, talk a little bit more about the the device integration on on that side. Yeah, it's uh, for us uh, location data, time, location, person, role data is is very very important. I mean, it it helps identify risk identify and locate risk um, and allows teams to be more predictive. I mean, let's take a, we'll take safety as an example. I mean, today, a safety management practice um, across um, multiple facilities, as an example, you know, it's basically audit and inspection driven. It's planned uh, according to the calendar, not according to where the risks are. Um, and it's very reactive. Our goal in safety is to make teams more proactive. So by collecting data and information uh, based on topic, based on zone, based on team, based on time, uh, we've worked with you to, to start to define some risk algorithms around, uh, around this data. How long, you know, where, how risky is the area where something was identified? How long has it been uh, unresolved. Um, how uh, how severe is the potential injury from this issue? These types of things, and we roll those up into a risk score. So a safety manager can look at a dashboard, see all the zones in his facility or facilities, define where the system sees the most risk, and then address that risk in a priority manner. And you know the combination of that. Transparency and intelligence 
for managers and leadership, combined with the ability of workers to identify these risks and watch them be resolved in a prioritized, smart way. Um, I mean, our customers are seeing significant reductions in reportable injuries. We've got several customers who've gone to zero recordable injuries, which is at least over the last year, which is always, always the target. Now that's not, the technology is not responsible for all of that. The people are, um, but the technology facilitates um, action, you know, changes in behavior and drives that drives that result. So it's, it's good stuff. That's awesome. Um, can we uh, dive in a, a little bit more in terms of the role that BEWorks played in helping build out your vision on the risk scoring side? I think that there are so many challenges that we face in terms of information being processed by leaders, as well as risks being understood. And this is right at the heart of, of behavioral science. Right. I, I mean, we believe that um, in many ways, um, behavioral science is a significant part of safety. Not all injuries are based on uh, behavior problems, um, but understanding, you know, why people do what they do, why they take risks that they take is, is a critical aspect of of what we do so early on um you know we we took a look at some of these complex systems and they are complex systems and we started to think about how to be predictive how to be proactive so much of safety historically safety in particular is reactive um and still is today uh we we tracked you guys down and uh and we had a couple of meetings and started talking about behavioral science uh, and taking a scientific approach to measuring and eliminating risk. And I I think uh, there was immediate uh, resonance between you and I and some of the discussions that we had. So I think that was the, that was the genesis of it. And uh, as we've been talking about recently, we look forward to doing, taking that to the next step or, or three or four. So. Who's your ideal client? Who are the, who are the kinds of, um, what are the kinds of industries and who are the kinds of leaders? Those are the, the two dimensions that I wanted to ask you about. Sure, sure. I think, you know, the, these concepts apply pretty broadly across, across different industrial segments. I mean, from a penetration standpoint, uh, we're discrete manufacturing, uh, food manufacturing, automotive, uh, utilities, Energy and utilities are some of our biggest early implementations, but really across the industrial landscape, the, the concepts are, these concepts are generally pretty, pretty similar. I think enterprises where, um, you know, safety can be lip service in a lot of organizations. Um, we, we look for customers who, who take, uh, who have a little bit of a leading, you know, take a thought leadership position in how to engage their frontline workforce in these improvements, safety, productivity, quality, and the like, they're, they're, they're all related. I mean, that's, that's the key for us. Um, you know, is the leadership 
do do they realize that their frontline workforce knows how to eliminate risks and solve problems uh, on the floor in a real way that isn't process driven? I mean, we see so much, you know, the people writing the processes and, and opining about how to solve problems have no experience with how the problems were created in the first place or how the work the work is done. So that's that's our focus, really, to, to find customers who are looking for technological solutions uh, to to make their frontline workforce better. You know? One of the points that you raised was uh, having a leader that is looking for that sort of proactive leading indicators. They've got the commitment uh, to a safe environment. Would you say that that some leaders don't believe that workers can necessarily be a part of the solution, um, that either they feel that that's their job to make sure that it's you know taken care of at, at more of the head office level, um, or that they don't necessarily believe that the teams will have good ideas. What are those kinds of experiences? Um, what's that look like to you? And um, what's it look like when you've had a leader you know, recognize that those kinds of ideas can come from within the team? Uh, the, many of those ideas still exist in industry. Uh, you know, it's it's changing faster and faster. I think it's changing faster coming out of this, or knock on wood, coming out of this, this pandemic. Um, but those points of view still exist. Um, uh, I think it's human nature when, when problems happen, when injuries occur, when processes don't work, um, I think it's human nature to identify uh, human error as the, as the problem um, and to blame. So we see uh, sometimes leadership who, who looks at a frontline workforce who isn't performing uh, effectively according to a safety or productivity metric and they blame the people. Um, you know, when we get leaders who understand that people do make mistakes and when you can use tools to help them solve problems, to help them uh, be more productive, to, to help them be safer, um, that you, you start to align the vision of the frontline workforce with the vision of the you know, the vision of the organization and it's, it's magic. I mean, it's magic. It's magic in safety. I mean, people start to almost humanize our technology sometimes uh, and think of it as a machine that solves problems, you know, consider, consider an old school way of approaching these things where a worker sees a safety hazard. They follow an analog process. If they're engaged, they fill out a card, they drop it in a box. Uh, the box gets collected three or four weeks later. Somebody puts it into a spreadsheet, maybe prioritizes it. Maybe a work order gets created uh, to solve this problem. Meanwhile, that worker every day has identified something that they think could hurt them. And they walk by it every day, seeing nothing change and nothing happen. That doesn't motivate them to feel like they're part of something. It doesn't motivate them to help solve these problems. It makes them believe that nobody cares. So when 
you put a little bit of technology in that worker's hands to help accelerate those mitigations, accelerate, give them a voice and show them how their voice is being heard and addressed in real time. Uh, it, it's magic. They become involved and engaged and start to solve more and more problems on behalf of the company. We had one customer when we started with them, they had an analog hazard process and their average time to close a hazard observation was 42 days. Within four months, uh, they were identifying two or three times as many hazards at this particular site and their average time to close all of them was two days. So, you know, the, these workers were expressing frustrations that they'd expressed for a long time, but that transparency that the technology gives and the accountability that it creates is drives drives results. What an energizing kind of safety sweep and transformation that must yeah, cult, Yes, I mean a culture culture change, really a change in the way this stuff is handled from top down reactive uh, to you know bottom up proactive approach and the you know there is you can't argue with the results i mean when you look at the kpis that people use around some of these things there's there's fundamental change a b works has done work in safety before you know i mean uh, how do you see the link between some of the work that we've done and previous work that you've done the science of behavioral uh, psychology and and safety i mean what's your point of view well i think I can build on something that you had already illustrated, which is that we have, uh, you know, as humans, as leaders, um, we're, we're guilty of uh, committing a thing called the fundamental attribution error. We assume that it's so-and-so's fault. It's that guy's fault. He made a mistake. And we don't recognize the systemic uh, precursors to those errors. This fundamental attribution error has a really, I think, neat way to describe it, uh, which is, or to illustrate it, which is, you know, imagine that you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off. And you know, sometimes our first impulse is just to assume that the guy's a real jerk. He cut you off, he pulled right in front of your car. And we think something about him, his personality, his, his character. And we failed to think that maybe his mirror just angled it a certain way and he didn't see us or he's in a certain headspace or there's an emergency going on. And he's actually just a really nice guy, but in an unfortunate set of circumstances, um, or again, there was something, you know, about the way the mirror in his car was, was set up. And so leaders need to make that shift from thinking that it's the worker is lazy or incompetent or they're not motivated or they're not educated or you know it's all resting on the individual shoulders as opposed to recognizing the systemic factors that serve as barriers to the behavior change that we want to see and so that i think is one of the philosophical aspects of the drive behavioral economics is that we need to recognize what's called the choice architecture of our environment. And we need to recognize the role that these biases 
like this fundamental attribution bias, fan fancy word to deal or fancy kind of concept to deal with this misrecognition of the balance between, you know, individual agency and then the systemic uh, factors that inhibit our inhibit our success. I agree. I mean, we, we see it all the time. I mean, the, you know, applying blame, a fundamental attribution bias, it, it also it also causes managers and leaders to not recognize the complexity around a lot of these, especially in these uh, in industrial environments. You know, there's there's a lot happening all at once, and and when when mistakes happen, it's uh, you know there's an effort to simplify the the solution, right? To to jump immediately to solving the problem without taking the time to really understand how the different stakeholders view that problem, you know, how, how they think it happened, why it happened, what may have led to that, you know, there's often a cascading effect of, you know, change and deviation from a process that that's, that's led to a failure. And, and uh, we think that applying I mean, collecting data, structured and unstructured data around these subjects in a in a thoughtful way, and then applying some, you know, scientific analysis to to the information overall can help teams. You know, giving them tools to do that when they're not behavioral scientists necessarily uh, can can help them overcome some of this stuff and 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 lead to a, a big result. I mean. Another, you know, question I've had for you too, and I've asked you this before, you know, how do you, how do we, you know, as a scientist, how do we study this, right? I mean, we're in these, we're in these facilities all the time and we're, we're, you know, we're operational guys, we're software guys, we're looking at how people do things, but, but uh, we're not scientists. So how do we, you know, work working with you? And as I said, you and I have talked about this a lot, but how, how do we bridge that gap? How do we study it and find the right solutions? Yeah, I think, you, you know, you're getting into an area that's probably the area that drives most of my passion for my work and for this field of behavioral science. And that actually just gets to the nature of what is scientific thinking itself. And by that, I mean... Uh, first of all, it's recognizing that, you know, we have to gather these observations in the world. And, you know, that's the data or that's what we see with our own eyes. But the first thing that we need to do is to question what we see. My experience walking through a factory might bring a certain set of observations, which will be different than someone else's. So we need to be willing to question what we see. And one of the ways to do that is through just large scale ongoing data collection and data analysis to help challenge our perception of individual events so that we can see larger timelines and larger trends that might shape our individual perception. So you have to aggregate that data constantly data 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 is the first thing that lets us mature past those very salient very necessary very human 
stories and anecdotes and individual experiences. But when we start to gather that data at scale, we're able to separate out what you know looks like uh, a major incident from the fact that there might be hidden patterns. So that's one of the first uh, fundamental elements of approaching these things with scientific thinking. But a complementary tool to use is to just constantly ask, how do you know? How do we know? How do I know? It's to just use that as a very provocative question to help us go, actually, we don't have good data for this. Um, we are just using our intuition. Sometimes that's okay, but we need to know what those sources of the data are because then that allows us to look at where biases and statistical fallacies and these other bits of noise that might uh, mislead us into you know, a misunderstanding of, of either you know, what the reality is or you know, lead us to see what we think we, uh, we, we want or, or hope to see. So those are some of the, the, the fundamental approaches to how we, you know, how, how we see things in a certain way. So make sure you have data long-term and as much as you, you can to analyze, you know, constantly ask, you know, how do you know? How do I know? How do we know? And then third, recognize that our perception is, is naturally misshapen in many ways by, by bias. That's right. that foundational, that's that first step. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. We're, we're on that journey and uh, we're, having, we're having fun with it. No question. So I want to talk to you about um, scientific thinking in, in general and um, how, how did you go on that journey? So many, so many people are just shoot from the hip. I use my gut. I know it when I see it. And they're very comfortable with this uh, way of thinking. It's a challenge. It's a big challenge in leadership. We got uh, a lot of ego gets kind of caught into the, into the mix of this. And it becomes a lot harder sometimes to challenge people's belief systems, to challenge their experience. If it's tough for them to have that scientific lens, which is, I don't want to say more humble, because I, I, I don't necessarily mean to say that leaders are arrogant just because they have intuition, but it, it's, a, it's a different kind of a, a mindset. And of course, I'm, you know, I fancy myself as, a, as an evangelist of scientific thinking and believe very much that it'll, you know, transform society and the economy. Love to hear your perspective on, on scientific thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I studied business and law and, you know, I'm a liberal arts guy. I'm, I'm not a scientist. Um, I think for me, you know, my, my interest in scientific thinking as applied to a lot of the entrepreneurial activities that I have probably comes from my initial background in medicine and healthcare. I spent a lot of time in operating rooms when I was a younger man, watching uh, watching procedures and, and designing medical devices to to you know conduct those procedures basically, and and uh, you know it's a data that's a data and <laughs> a data driven science driven 
activity and enterprise, right? And as I as I left that field and started to get into other businesses, that I think that came that came with me. And overall, I think that we're undergoing a a big paradigm shift in the leadership of business. And I I, I see it today more so than I did 10 years ago. And I think 10, 10 years from now, it, it will be firmly entrenched, but data, data is the king, you know, and effective analysis and use of that data typically wins, you know, which isn't to say intuition and good strategy can't win, but if it's based in, uh, if it's based in data and if, scientific thinking is applied to that data without bias um, in a smart way. Uh, I think the odds of success improve dramatically. I mean, in business, one area that you see this now profoundly is in marketing, right? I mean, marketing used to be a, a, a you know, witchcraft, right? Uh, creativity and, uh, and, you know, just, uh, artful communication today it's completely data driven i mean they're they're you know the message has to be right but you if you're if you follow the data you know immediately whether whether it's right or wrong and and, and you adjust and i i think most of our business practice will is starting either has is following is starting to follow or will soon follow that same approach. I think the frontline nature of industrial work where we're playing is, is kind of on the tail end of that, you know, I mean, these frontline workers um, have been viewed as uh, not data generators, right? I mean, you look at the integration of IOT technology, the first effort in industrial organizations is to put sensors on machines. Um, to collect data from those machines to get more scientific about how you know to improve output or, or improve quality people have tried to put sensors on workers and collect data without providing any feedback to the frontline worker and it doesn't work because workers are humans so if you can engage that worker in the creation and collection of data and in in the scientific method to solve problems uh you know that's that's where we're headed and we think that's you know really the next inflection point around a lot of these uh in a lot of these situations so. well it's such a powerful philosophy and you know the the proof is in the the results that we've mm-hmm. seen uh so that's you know that's the success story between Corvex and its customers, and you know your your partners who are proud to be on the journey with you. Joe, one of the things that you talk a lot about is operational excellence, and I wanted you to explain uh, what that means to you, um, how it improves not just productivity, but what you also talk about in terms of uh, uh, retention and mm-hmm. as, as well as other business factors well to us i mean they're they're businessy words but to us you know operational excellence um is a headline for safety outcomes uh quality outcomes productivity outcomes and uh 
you know, we I would add sustainability and innovation outcomes or continuous improvement outcomes under that headline. So it's it's a, a, a title that measures, I think, the major success or failure factors, high level of an organization. Our philosophy around driving operational excellence is including the people who do the work at the front line every day in these organizations, whether it's a construction business or a food manufacturer or, uh, you know, a, a logistics company, right? By, by taking the study, scientific study of operational excellence all the way to the edge, to use a computing term, right? Collecting data at the edge and transmitting data and information back to the edge to make the the machine work better. Um, we drive operational excellence in measurable real-time ways and, and and accelerate the practice of operational excellence. It's it it becomes for us less about studying what happened last month or last quarter and trying to figure out how to improve it but analyzing what happened 10 minutes ago and uh trying to figure out in real time collaboratively using technology how to take advantage of that whatever that is uh you know to to drive improvement in 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 one of those categories right um you know on the safety side it's you know, measurable safety outcomes. How many people get hurt? How badly are they hurt? Um, you know, what does that cost uh, that person and their company? Right? Quality outcomes, you know, self-explanatory, right? Uh, you know, productivity outcomes, also self-explanatory. A lot of the processes that have driven these over the last decades, you know, you know quality management systems, uh, traditional top-down EHS, environmental health and safety systems, lean practice, you know, these, these, these processes don't engage. They don't work at the edge very effectively. And uh, we see that as the shortcoming. By, by, by driving these practices all the way to the edge, to the, to the last worker on the organizational chart, right? And engaging them, uh, pro providing a way for them to be heard and uh, included in, in driving operational excellence. Uh, we, really, we really see an acceleration. Worker retention right now, at least in the United States here, I know you're up in Canada, Kelly, but you know, it's, a, it's the largest uh, industry, frontline worker, Attraction and retention is the, the largest risk facing a lot of these organizations. They can't hire people and they can't retain them. You know, they're measuring turnover in weeks sometimes. You know, uh, we, we had a customer we talked to the other day. They have over 70% frontline turnover a year. So, um, I mean, they, they can't hire and keep people fast enough. And one of the reasons is uh, they don't engage. They don't engage them, you know. Um, so talk about sustainability. I mean, it's a human resource. Sustainability is, is a significant issue. And, you know, we've proven that by giving people a voice, listening to it and, and responding and reacting in 
positive ways, it, it starts to change that. I mean, we, we see well above double double digit, uh, you know, reductions in frontline worker turnover in the plants that are using our our system. So it's exciting. Well, Joe, I've got one last big question for you. Oh, <laughs> what's your hope for the future in terms of worker safety and performance? Where do you, where do you think it's going to go? Uh, where do you want it to go? And hopefully, those are the same. Yeah, I, I, I would like to see a, a world where m- most, if not all, frontline industrial workers. Uh, feel like they're doing something important. They feel like they're part of a team and they have the tools and technologies uh, like ours in their hands to, to make uh, the nature of their work safe first, first of all, and uh, rewarding, personally rewarding uh, f- for them. And I think, you know, through COVID-19 here, I think a lot of organizations have realized the importance of that. These frontline workers are people. They're not immediately replaceable with another body and that companies need to invest in making them safer, making them more agile, um, helping them improve and, and just making them feel like they're, they're part of something valuable. So that that's what drives what we do. Um, in a big, big way. And we think, you know, per this conversation, we think we can apply some really strong scientific thinking and uh, some computing and technology and data science to, to help make that vision or a, a reality. That's fantastic. Well, we learned through a lot of our research during COVID-19 that um, so many of the changes put pressure on belonging as well as psychological safety. And psychological safety is a concept that refers to a worker feeling uh, comfortable, uh, being able to critique things that they see, to feel comfortable and safe that this won't have a, a negative consequence on their employment or their stature within an organization. It means feeling that you can say these things, um, but also have confidence that these insights will go someplace. So that sense of belonging and that psychological safety are two of the most fundamental tools for worker satisfaction and happiness and engagement. And many of these more aspirational goals that you've talked about that go way beyond worker safety and into more fundamental business success across the board. And that's something that you've always talked about, Joe. You've always made this relationship between worker safety and business performance. And tying those things together, I think, is the thing that might ultimately help organizations feel that safety isn't just a cost recovery item as a must-do, in a you know regulatory compliance mindset but instead is a strategic asset for a culture uh, a culture of safety that is also in tandem with business success well i couldn't agree more (laughs) 
Well, Joe, thank you so much for your time. It's always wonderful to hear your insights on such an important topic. I hope that people have uh, approached this particular conversation with maybe walking away with more about scientific thinking, with thinking about the role of data and devices and technology and apps uh, coming together in, in new ways to transform our our workplace. Thank you so much for your wonderful insights. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kelly. It's great to talk to you.